Hello and welcome again on this morning. Um, now for our opening words, a slight typo in the uh, order of service, which I, I will take responsibility for. It says our opening words are by Carl Sagan. Um, I like Carl Sagan, but I wasn't planning on bookending service with him. Our opening words are, in fact, by Ernesto Cardinal, called Music of the Spheres. It's actually in the hymnal in number 532. The music of the spheres, a harmonious universe, like a harp. Its rhythms are equal, repeated, seasons, the beating of a heart. Day, night. The going and returning of migratory birds, the cycles of stars and corn, the mimosa that unfolds by day and folds up again by night, rhythms of moon and tide, one single rhythm in planets, atoms, sea, and apples that rise and fall, and in the mind of Newton, melody, accord, arpeggios, the harp of the universe, Unity behind apparent multiplicity. That is the music. Welcome, Marge, um, for our announcements so we can uh, know what is going on in this community. As always, it's busy. Uh, be sure to read your order of service, all pages, front and back, carefully, because I'm not going to cover everything. Uh, First off, Kathy Peterson has a couch that has been donated for our fam the Muratovs, but she needs a pickup and a driver to transport it. Uh, she'll be, Mr. okay, she's at the uh, social justice table for, uh, you can work out your details. Um, Charles Bailey is busy taking pictures. I'm sure that uh, Dennis Stilger and the uh, Canvas Committee are working hard and they're trying to get all these pictures in, so uh, he'll be running around here today again with his camera. The sign-ups for Wednesday evening open campus, the table is in Weston Hall. There wasn't space for it out in the gathering space. Isn't that good that we're so busy? We have to expand. Uh, tickets on sale for the Laramie Project that Amy Lewis has been working on and that TJ is listed as a sponsor. Uh, it will be starting February 1st at 7.30 and goes 2nd, 3rd, 8, 9, and 10 at 8, and 10 and 11 at 2. Um, Tickets are $15, and uh, Amy Lewis, who's one of the directors, has a table out in the uh, gathering space. Uh, on down through here, we have an announcement uh, pertaining to open campus, and uh, if Steve Reeves doesn't get here, then I'll come back with a couple of comments about the uh, new window. So hopefully Steve will get over here from working with kids. Uh, Barb, are you ready with your group? Yes. Okay. We've had a wonderful response for classes. They do start this coming Wednesday night, 
but I'm not automatically assuming that you're coming to dinner. It's only been class registration so far, although you've had the menu. So please do sign up for dinner. Lots of people come to classes and not dinner, so I'm not going to make any assumptions. Please do sign up for dinner this today that starts this Wednesday. Thanks. Delay, but we have to get Steve over here. As you noticed in your order of service, you have the uh, insert about the new window proposed for here in uh, TJ. Uh, so I will turn this now to Steve, who's in charge. Sorry, I'm back in the farmhouse working with the kids this morning. Much time. Okay, you've already seen this once. Uh, we are still collecting on the on the window. We have two people that have uh, generously donated uh, a total of $1,500. That is a matching fund. That means if the, rest of, if the rest of us can come up with another $1,500, we've got the total amount for the window. So give what you can, and um, let's see this up there. We arranged for sunlight to come through that window today, just so you can kind of see what it's going to do. So let me not take up any more time. Thank you. Again, reminder, if you're sponsoring a child with the Vahiga Orphanage, the next week you need to bring in your stuff to be mailed. Did that cover it? <laughs> and now is the time where we uh, show the generosity of this church materially with the morning's offering. Oh, no, chalice lighting. Really tough crowd. <laughs> Chalice lighting is in your order of service. As we light our chalice, we say together, Flame of fire, spark of the universe, that warmed our ancestral hearth, agent of life and death, symbol of truth and freedom. We strive to understand ourselves and our earthly home. Now, Now we show the generosity of this church with our morning's offering and also with the offering from the choir, an offering of music.
Our next reading is from the 38th chapter of the book of Job. Um, I know it might seem an unusual choice, this looking for astronomical illusions. Or actually, word planet does not appear in the Bible according to my electronic concordance. Um, but there's certainly some very cosmic images, and there's certainly some very you know, images of creation and of power. Um, this section actually starts right at the end of, you know, if you know the story of Job, right after he's, all of his comforters have spoken to him, trying to explain to him why he, he's suffered so much, and he rejects them all, and basically calls on God to explain himself. And this is the beginning of God's response. Then the Holy One answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, and I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all heavenly beings shouted for joy? Has the rain a father who is, or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did ice come forth? And who has given birth to the hoarfrost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maserat in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinance of heaven? Can you establish their rule on earth? There ends the reading. Now if you would open your hymnal to number 304, and please rise as you are willing and able to sing a fierce sunrest. <laughs>
And now for our words for reflection and silence, we move from the ancient words of the book of Job to more recent poetry from the book called The Planets, A Cosmic Pastoral by Diane Ackerman. This uh, comes from her poem called Pluto. But now, nine worlds later, I hug the coastline of yet another frontier, Pluto, a planet conjured into being by the raucous math of Percival Lowell, a land bristling with ice, gray and barren, where the sun, nearly doused, rallies but a paltry silver sliver of light, and messages take 10 to 12 hours to field. Imagine the cool, deliberate chess games, the anxious lovers, the crises exploding between communiques. A planet-sized enigma, jogging in place, Pluto's moved little since its discovery, touring the sun once every 248 years. You could be born in winter and never live to see the spring. We think of Pluto as an instop, or skidding out like the last skater on a whip, a land glacial, remote, calm, and phlegmatic. But right now, while you read these lines, I swear, due to an odd perturbation in their orbits, Neptune and Pluto are swapping places in a celestial pas de deux, where the only aerials are quantum leaps.
Last fall, the Sunday morning adult RE class looked at a video course on the history of science. The normal pattern for this class is to watch the video lecture and then to spend the rest of the class time discussing it. This course made a couple of claims about the nature of science and religion, specifically Western science and Christianity, since the course was focused on Europe. Claims that generate a great deal of discussion among the class members. One claim was that the conflict between science and religion was of recent origins. The second was that there was nothing in the nature of science and religion as such that made this a necessary state of affairs, and that in fact they had been in very close relationship for much of their history. In the end, none of us in the class entirely agreed with either the lecturer or the, each other, and that's, I think, as it should be. But it got me thinking about how we look at both science and religion, particularly in our Unitarian Universalist faith. Certainly, I am guilty of subscribing, somewhat unreflectively, to the warfare model of science and religion that this video course questioned. My first sermon, in fact, which was preached in my church in California in the early 90s, was about the conflict between creation science and evolution, and particularly by attempts to undermine the teaching of evolution by replacing it with creation science. Creation science, for those who may not know, is quite honestly not science, but it's a literalist interpretation of the early chapters of the book of Genesis with a thin veneer of geology and physics to try and get it past the curriculums in which its proponents wanted to taught either in place of evolution or if not that at least alongside of evolution. Ultimately this conflict is a conflict not so much between science and religion per se but between a particular form of religion, Christian fundamentalism and science. And what we need to be concerned about is a political and educational issue. I don't find that that framework is particularly constructive for looking at how we ought to relate to science as Unitarian Universalists. We relate, you know, frankly, we relate differently than Christian fundamentalists. The broad fr framework for that relationship can be found in our principles and purposes. They're in the opening section of your hymnal right before the first hymn. Right there. The fifth source of our tradition is humanist teachings, which counsel us to heed the guidance of reason and the results of science and warn us against idolatries of the mind and spirit. We as a faith are intentionally open to the insights of the sciences, physical and social. Well, I don't think this stand is particularly unique among religious practitioners. I think we are more explicit about it than other traditions. The question then becomes, how do we heed the results of science? What can we learn from science? How to do this is not necessarily straightforward. Often the biggest problem can be just finding out what are the results of science. 
even if you are a scientist, it's impossible to keep up with all the advances in every field. Even in one field, say, planetary science, you have to specialize. And planetary science is, frankly, already a fairly focused field. I've studied it as an undergraduate, you know, certainly more focused than something like physics or biology. So for the rest of us, or even if you're a scientist interested in something outside your own field, you're forced to rely on second-hand reports rather than the original research papers or even your own explorations. Most easily available is what I call the general mass media. That's newspapers, news magazines, television, even to some extent the Internet. I think we all know the pitfalls of these media. Even allowing that the reporters are qualified to report on science, the media tend to select for certain kinds of stories, generally stories that are highly controversial or that have some sort of obvious human interest hook. The reports themselves tend to overplay the controversies or the potential risk or benefits to people. Reporters, in an honorable attempt, I guess, to try and present balance in their report, too often end up creating the illusion that there, there's some real controversy, some real disagreement about an issue where, in fact, there may be a hand, only a handful of contrarians. Probably the most dangerous aspect of this, one that has serious repercussions for us and for the future of the planet, is the reporting on global climate change. As many of you might know, particularly if you saw Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth, climate change reporting is particularly guilty of giving, shall we say, too much airtime to fairly minority views that downplay the role of humans in global climate change, when in fact among mainstream scientists there's virtually no disagreement that humans are impacting the climate and not for the best. The other problem is almost the flip side of this. It's that stories, you know, in the mass media are written for everyone and often have to be written so broadly and so simplified that they are unintentionally deceptive. Ironically, these simplifications often end up implying that they're, you know, eliminating controversies, presenting things that as absolute conclusions when in fact they're much more tentative. So you end up with a situation where some controversies that may be almost non-existent are overplayed and some controversies are underreported, the result being unfortunately to discredit science in many people's minds. So what are you to do? Um, I'm afraid there's no easy answer to this. Just consider your sources, you know, talk to other people. Certainly some sources are better than others. And ask people you trust to help you to weigh the evidence. And watch out, as our fifth source says, for those idolatries of mind and spirit which haunt all endeavors of knowledge, not just science. Some of you may have heard last summer that the planet Pluto had been recently demoted to a dwarf planet, a move that was quite controversial. 
What's particularly interesting to us is you use is the planet was discovered by a Unitarian Universalist named Clyde Tombaugh. I'll tell you a little bit more about him later. But meanwhile, Pluto has certainly been in the news, um, besides being in our denominational magazine in the winter issue. Um, also made the cover of the January 07 Scientific American. And on the December National Geographic, well, actually, it's Saturn. But that's the source of the poster that I got down there, which you know made, made a point of getting out with it. There are now eight planets instead of the nine that we had all been taught. You know, I've got it up there right in front of you. Um, the planets on the poster are just scale and size, though not in spacing. Pluto is the very small little dot, um, one up from the bottom, if you can see it. <laughs> And I'll take a chance here. Um, is there anyone here who was born before 1930? Okay. 1930 was the year that Pluto was discovered. So within your lifetime, you've seen the rise and possibly the demise of a planet. <laughs> I mentioned before that, that Pluto was discovered by UU named Clyde Tombaugh. He was actually originally a farmer in rural Kansas with a, only a high school education that on a lark sent some pictures of Jupiter and Mars that he had drawn from his telescope observations to the director of the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. And basically the director was sufficiently impressed to say, hey, come on. So he Clyde spent the last of his savings and got a one-way train ticket to Arizona. Or he was put to work in rather tedious search for Planet X, the so-called missing planet. Uh, it was kind of an obsession of the observatory's founder, Percival Lowell, who's coincidentally also a Unitarian. He's a scion of Boston's famous Lowell family. And after 10 months of very tedious searching, Tombaugh found Planet X, which later became known officially as Pluto. Now, the fact that there was actually anything there for Tombaugh to discover is rather amazing. Because while Lowell may have had the money to build his own private observatory, that did not mean that he really had the science background to do it. The truth is, his science, even by the standards of the early 20th century was not particularly sound. <laughs> much of it seems to have been the result of wishful thinking as much as good observation or prudent analysis. And it's easy to kind of make fun of Lowell. But it, when it comes down to it, science tends to be very hesitant to entirely dismiss its contrarians or eccentrics. This is not to say that anybody disagreeing with the consensus view is going to get a free pass. Far from it. But there's an understanding that if the evidence for a particular theory is strong enough, criticism will not endanger it. If anything, responding to the criticism might help strengthen it and it makes, forces people to clarify their thinking. And there is the possibility that the critic, the contrarian, even if they seem to be coming from way out in the fringe, might actually be right. 
we use also try to be open to critical opinions in religious matters as well. This is not to say we should accept every view uncritically. Religion has at least as many contrarians as science. But the possibility that we can reach a new truth by engaging with those on the edge is very strong, even when they turn out ultimately to be wrong. Tombaugh is looking in the right place at the right time, but for totally the wrong reasons. I mentioned before that National Geographic had Saturn on the cover of its December issue. I'm afraid a picture of Pluto would not have sold many magazines. For most of the decades after Pluto's discovery, all we really had was Tomba's picture, in which Pluto basically looks like a faint star. The best that we've been able to do since, even with the Hubble telescope, is to get a fuzzy gray disk with some light gray. Pluto was a strange bird. The rest of the planets in the outer solar system are gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn. Pluto is a small, rocky world. All of the other planets orbit the sun in a plane called the ecliptic. Pluto's orbit is kind of like this. And the evidence points to Pluto having a very different origin than the other eight planets. In the 1990s, it became clear to scientists where, in fact, Pluto had come from. It turned out to be the first object in what's now called the Kuiper Belt, which is a collection of small rock ice bodies that lie beyond the orbit of Neptune. They're basically the fossil remains of the creation of the solar system that weren't captured into planets and ended up, once the planets did form, to kind of be ejected out beyond the orbit of Neptune. Occasionally, one of them will get a gravitational nudge from one of the bigger planets or maybe a passing star, and they'll come in and become a long-period long comet, or in the case of Pluto, something else entirely, something like a planet. But should Pluto be, still be classified as a planet? Complications ensued. The first complication is that once Kuiper belt objects began to be discovered regularly, planetary astronomers realized that if Pluto was classified as a planet, then a lot of other things, potentially hundreds and maybe thousands of bodies, would have to be classified as planets, which would have rendered the term meaningless. The other complication, slightly embarrassing, was that no one to date had actually rigorously defined what a planet was. There never been a need up to this point. The term was defined in antiquity to describe basically things in the sky that aren't stars, that actually move relative to the stars, which in antiquity was the sun, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and the moon, all of which are visible to the naked eye. Today we classify Earth as a planet, and the sun is a star, and the moon is a satellite of the Earth, but these are slight shifts. The planet Uranus was discovered in the 18th century with the telescope, and then Neptune in the 19th. Even from Earth, it is clear that they are both so so similar to Jupiter and Saturn in size and composition, as you can see from the poster, that there really was not any strain in calling them planets. They're 
they look like planets, they act like planets, they're probably planets. And it's only with Pluto and its Kuiper Belt siblings that the complications ensued. But however, these complications are not entirely without precedent. As Steven Sutter points out in his Scientific American article, Ceres, which was the first asteroid discovered, was originally described as a planet, one that orbited between Mars and Jupiter, before observers realized that there were hundreds of small bodies in the same general orbit. We're back to the same problem. We'd have had hundreds of planets, and the term would have been rendered meaningless. So they decided to reclassify Ceres, and it became the first asteroid discovered, and now there are hundreds, if not thousands, of asteroids on record. And Soder tends to claim that, you know, if Ceres can be reclassified, then what's the big deal about reclassifying Pluto? Well, to admit, I, I have a... It's possible, certainly, that we can reclassify it, obviously, but I must admit I'm still a bit of a partisan for Pluto. Maybe that's an idolatry. Um, I know that the vote taken in August by the International Astronomical Union is still somewhat controversial. Um, There are claims that the group that voted was not sufficiently representative of planetary scientists. even claims that it was basically an anti-American vote since Pluto was the only planet discovered by Americans. (laughs) And on a personal level, just from my own background, I find the definition a little problematic. It's supposed to be based on something intrinsic in the planet, but it seems to be as much based on where you happen to be in the solar system. And if you're really interested, I would do recommend you read the Scientific American article. I admit it was something that surprised me when I first found out that nobody had actually defined the term planet before now. Scientists are just notorious for being very precise and very specific in their terminology to the extent that it's almost meaningless to anybody outside the field, but maybe I shouldn't have been. It's easy enough to use terms without thinking about them, especially if everyone knows what they mean. Until the past 10 or 20 years, it was clear for most of us, even most planetary scientists, what a planet was. And if the scientists, who like to be precise, didn't worry much about it, why should we? Yet at that time, when I was studying planetary science as an undergraduate and not worrying about the precise definition of a planet, I had also become a Unitarian Universalist. And because of that, I spent a lot of time trying to define terms like God and religion and Jesus that a lot of my friends assumed that they knew the meaning of and that everybody knew the meaning of. Both religionists and scientists can get complacent, and they can both become legalistic. Both of these fields evolve and change. But we are often more aware of the rate of change in the sciences, Diane Ackerman wrote her book, The Planets, in the mid-70s. In reading it now, it tends to show its age, whatever its other literary value. And the section I read from for the planet Pluto for reading for reflection and silence, she refers to the fact that Pluto, while you are reading these lines, is closer to the sun and Neptune. 
As of 1999, that was no longer true. Shortly after this section ended, she dated herself even further, noting that if Pluto had a menagerie of moons, we don't see them. Well, Pluto doesn't have a menagerie, but about two years after she wrote that, it was discovered that it had one, Charon. There is definitely a risk in having one's art or religion open to science. It's not just that the science might change. Science almost certainly will change. By holding the principle that counsels us to heed the guidance of reason and the results of science, we are left in something of a quandary. We are called upon to shape and hold onto a faith, and yet be open to the possibility that the basis of that faith could shift, almost without warning. God in the universe could be something very different than what we understood it to be. But then they again, I think there are parallels and precedents for that. It's in the Bible. Job comes to much the same discovery that God and the universe were not what he understood them to be. He assumed that if he was suffering, there must be a reason for it, something that he could understand. He could not accept his comforter's explanation that his suffering was somehow due to some sin on his part or his children's part because he knew he hadn't sinned and they hadn't sinned. But he felt there had to be some explanation, so he insisted that God explain it to him. God's response, in essence, is, Who do you think you are? Of course, God being God takes four chapters in the book of Job to say that. I've always found this answer troubling. It's a bit too much like shut up and don't ask any questions. But looked at another way, God may be pointing to the answer. The universe is not what you think it is. Job shuts up, that's true. But there's no evidence that Job becomes a cynic or a critic or that he abandons his faith. His faith is changed. And we can imagine that he spends the rest of his life reshaping his beliefs about God and creation. Maybe we have evidence in Job of an early example of how faith can survive, even be strengthened, by a radical change in the understanding of the cosmos, such as might be caused by a quantum leap in science. May we always be open to further understanding and wisdom and be willing to allow ourselves to be reshaped by it. And if you would, please open your hymnals to number 179. No, I'm sorry, number 79. No number tallies nature up. And please rise as you're willing and able.
Please be seated. The closing reading really is from Carl Sagan. It's actually from the end of, towards the end of the last chapter of his book, Cosmos. The cost of major ventures into space, permanent bases on the moon, or human exploration of Mars, say, is so large that they will not, I think, be mustered in the near future unless we make dramatic progress in nuclear and conventional disarmament. Even then, there are more pressing needs here on Earth. But I have no doubt that if we avoid self-destruction, we will sooner or later perform such missions. It is almost impossible to maintain a static society. There's a kind of psychological compound interest. Even a small tendency towards retrenchment, a turning away from the cosmos, adds up over many generations to a significant decline. And conversely, even a slight commitment to ventures beyond the earth, to what we might call, after Columbus, the enterprise of the stars, builds over many generations to a significant human presence on other worlds, a rejoicing in our participation in the cosmos. For we are the local embodiment of the cosmos grown to self-awareness. We have begun to contemplate our origins, star stuff pondering the stars, organized assemblages of 10 billion, billion, billion atoms, considering the evolution of atoms, tracing the long journey by which, here at last, consciousness arose. Our loyalties are to the species and the planet. We speak for Earth. Our obligation is to survive is owed not just to ourselves, but also to that cosmos, ancient and vast, from which we spring. Thank you very much, and I'll see you all next week. (laughs) 